important text today and uh, really hopefully uh, a wake-up call for some of us. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer and look at uh, Revelation chapter 3. Father, we just again thank you for the great lessons that you teach us in your word. And today as we look at this church of Laodicea, Lord, this church that you call lukewarm, Lord, there is such a lesson here because, Lord, you tell us exactly what you think, not only of lukewarm churches, but lukewarm believers, Lord, that you would rather us be cold than lukewarm. You want us hot, Lord, for your, for your kingdom, but uh, you would rather us be cold than lukewarm. Lord, you, your word says that you, you will vomit out those who are lukewarm. That, that's, that's pretty blunt, Lord, and, and uh, we receive what you're saying there. Lord, but we can't make ourselves hot for the kingdom of God. You've shown us that. That's a, that's a gift of grace, Lord. But there's a test. There's a test that comes uh, to all of us. And, and, and in this text, Lord, we, we need to check our hearts and ask ourselves honestly, are we lukewarm believers or are we truly on fire for you? Because there's no in-between in your mind, Lord. There's no in-between in your heart. And we better be very sure that we're hot for the king, things of the kingdom of God. Lord, that we love you, that we are passionate for you. Because if we aren't, Lord, we're deceiving ourselves. Just like this church at Laodicea deceived themselves. But Lord, there's such great promises in your word. There's such great future, such great hope for those of us who who truly come into a relationship with you, Lord, a love relationship, a relationship full of passion and love. Lord, if that's not the relationship that we have for you today, Lord, let us honestly ask ourselves what's wrong. Why isn't it that way? And, Lord, you're going to show us just how we can fix that condition today also as we look at this text. So, Lord, it is a very, very important text for the church in America today, for the church in Lafayette today, for each believer in this room, each person who claims to be a believer in this room. So I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you convict us and teach us and you show us the true way into the true relationship with the true and living God. And I ask that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, and I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. When my boys were going to high school, the high school where they attended had a dress code, and they hated the dress code. It was white shirts and khaki pants. I loved the dress code. I love the dress code because every morning when they got up, I didn't have to argue with them about what they were going to wear. And I love the dress code because instead of having to buy clothes for them at Dillard's and Express, I bought their clothes at Walmart's. So I love the dress code. And they had to adhere to the dress code because if they didn't adhere to the dress code, they were suspended from school. So the dress code to me was a pretty good thing. Well, in heaven, 
there is a dress code. There's a dress code, and it's not khakis and white. It is all white. You won't be wearing but anything but white throughout eternity if you're a born-again believer. So you better get used to the dress code because you're going be, to be under a dress code when you get, get to heaven. But we're going to see today you're going to really like the dress code. It's a really good thing. Well, we're going to look at the church in Laodicea today. And these people, hey, they were, they were rich. And they were dressed in the finest garments of their day. I mean, the latest fashions. And they were doing just fine. They thought. But they were violating God's dress code. And the penalty for violating God's dress code isn't suspension. The penalty for violating God's dress code is you don't make it into the kingdom of God. You're kicked out of heaven and you don't make it into the kingdom of God. And so we're going to look at this church today and look at the condition they were in and make sure that we're wearing God's dress code. And so uh, just looking at uh, setting this up, you remember last week when we looked at the church of Philadelphia, I made it clear that, that uh, all seven letters that were written to these seven churches have application for every believer in every age. There's no doubt about that. And I believe that these letters were literally are, are written to, to seven literal churches, uh, churches in Asia, but they have application for every believer and every church in every age. But the two churches that I believe are most applicable to our age are the church at Philadelphia and the church at Laodicea. Because I believe that, first of all, you interpret Revelation uh, literally, but then secondarily, you interpret, interpret it historically. And I believe that these two churches represent the two churches that will be on this earth when the Great Tribulation begins. First of all, you have the church at Philadelphia, which represents the true church with true believers who will escape the great tribulation. And then you have the church at Laodicea, which represents the false church, the apostate church made up of people who call themselves Christians who aren't really Christians, and they will go into the great tribulation. And if you want to take that, if, let's say we're not part of that age, where maybe the Great Tribulation is going to take place 100 years from now, maybe, maybe that's not applicable in that sense for us, but it's applicable for every believer because every believer needs to determine whether they're part of the Church of Philadelphia, which is the true church, or whether they're part of the church at Laodicea, which is the false church. Well, so we're going to look at this church at Laodicea today. And let me tell you just a little bit about Laodicea before we get started. Uh, it was a very rich city. It sat just a few miles south of uh, the church of Philadelphia. It sat on that main Roman highway. And it was, so it was a major trade center. One of the central banks of Rome was located in Laodicea. So it was a very prosperous city. And most of the people there prospered, and a lot of the people there were rich. 
and that prosperity carried over into the church. And the, so the church was a very rich church too. And uh, uh, so they thought that they were doing really well. But Jesus wasn't impressed at all. In fact, he was sickened by this church. Look at verse number 14. Going to chapter number 3, look at number, verse number 14. He says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, he gives us a very interesting description of himself. Remember, in every letter, in all seven letters, Jesus gives a description of himself. And if you take all seven of those descriptions of Jesus Christ, you get a pretty good idea of who Jesus Christ is because that number seven is divine completion. And so you get really a, almost a complete picture of who he is. And he really says something very interesting about himself here. He calls himself the Amen. I like that. The Amen. Now, I was raised a Baptist. And in, in the Baptist church, everybody says amen, and they say amen to about everything you say. I mean, I'd love to hear you guys, amen, amen, amen. And that's the way they do it in a Baptist church. I did my mother's funeral a while back, and there was some Baptists there, and, and I would, everything I said, almost after every phrase, I would hear amen. I mean, the good things, I would say my mom, you know, was a good Baptist, amen. My mom's now in the grave, amen. Well, you know, they were, they, were, they were using that a little bit out of context, and I think we sometimes use that out of context. I mean, I remember when I was a child and the, and the, the revivalist would come to town and, and uh, all the youth would sit together and, and he would look over at the youth and he'd say, if you youth don't stop sinning, you're going to end up in hell. And all the adults would go, amen. And then he would say, hey, that goes for you adults too. And all the youth who had the courage to do it said, amen, too. So, amen. We think of amen as, as agreeing to something. But it means something much more than that. Uh, notice in this passage, looking down at verse number 14, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't just say amen. He calls himself the amen. And that's a great title because he explains why. Looking back at the verse there, he explains why because he says, these things says the amen and why? Because he's the faithful and true witness. He's faithful and true witness of what? He's a faithful and true witness of who God is. He's a faithful and true witness of the truth. And so he has the last word. He is the amen. And when he says he's the amen, that's another declaration of his absolute deity. Now the word amen is an interesting word, and you really have to chase this down so you really understand what it means when you say amen. There's a meaning to that word amen. And I, and I want to I chase that down a little bit. Actually, the word amen is a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word amen. And it was transliterated, the Greek language picked it up, amen. And then we picked it up in English and we didn't change it. It came all the way into English unchanged and we say amen. So I want to look at a few of the uses of this word amen 
in the Old Testament. So go with me over to Isaiah. Go back towards Genesis, back toward the Psalms. And before you get to the Psalms, one of those big books that you'll find there is the book of Isaiah. You might want to keep your uh, tabs on Isaiah because uh, Isaiah is, uh, we're going to be back and forth there several times here today. So, so hang on to Isaiah. A lot of people call the book of Isaiah the gospel of Isaiah, and that's appropriate because it, the, the gospel is given in full detail in the book of Isaiah. But look with me at Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah 49, and remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. So, when he says he's the amen, he's saying that he's faithful and true. Now, look at verse number 7, chapter 49, verse number 7. I love this passage right here. Isaiah is full of these passages. This is about Jesus Christ as Jehovah God, and this is one of those passages. Look at verse number 7. He says, thus says the Lord. Now, when we see the Lord in caps like that, who is that speaking of? We trans, that's, a, that's, we're, that you, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, or it depends on how you pronounce it, or the Hebrew word Jehovah. So thus says the Lord, Jehovah. And look, he describes himself. He says, the Redeemer of Israel. Now who's the Redeemer of Israel? Jesus is the redeem, our Redeemer. He's the Redeemer. So guess who He is? He's Jehovah. He's the Amen. Going on, it says, To Him who, whom man despises. That makes sense because mankind despise Jesus Christ. To Him whom the nation abhors. To the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes shall also, shall, also shall worship. One day when He walks in the room, all the kings of the world are going to stand and then bow and fall on their faces. They're going to fall on their faces before they stand. And the princes shall also worship because of the Lord who is faithful. Now, what did Jesus say about himself? He said in Revelation 3 that he is faithful and true. And that word, or that phrase, the Lord who is faithful, is Jehovah Amen in the Hebrew. Jehovah Amen. The Holy One of Israel. Who is Jesus? He's declaring in Revelation that he is Jehovah God. Jehovah, amen. The Holy One of Israel and he has chosen you. Now go with me, flip over to Isaiah 65. And go to Isaiah 65 and look at verse number 16. Isaiah 65, verse 16. Another great passage. He says, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. Elohim, amen. Who is Jesus? He's faithful and true. The God of truth, Elohim, amen. Faithful and true. And he who swears in the earth, he shall swear by the one God of truth. Elohim, amen. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. So you see him faithful, you see him as true, just as Jesus says in Revelation. Now go to Psalms 19. You've got to back up a little bit towards Genesis. 
Go to Psalms 19. And in Psalms 19, look at verse number 7. It says, Psalms 19, verse number 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The Lord is sure, that phrase, the Lord is sure, is Jehovah, amen. You see what this description you're getting of Jesus? He's faith, he's true, we saw in the first passage in Isaiah. He's faithful, we saw in the second passage in Isaiah. And he is sure. He's Jehovah, amen. Jehovah, amen. Elohim, amen. And we see that carry on right into the New Testament. That's who he is to us. He is faithful and true to us. He is sure. You can, you can count on him. He's for sure. Look, go with me over to, we see this same word in, in uh, the New Testament on a couple of occasions. But go with me over to 2 Corinthians, all the way back to the New Testament. Don't forget to hold your place in Isaiah because we'll be coming back there. But go with me over to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter number 1. Now here's some really good news for all of you who are on fire for the Lord. If you don't give a flip about this, you better listen very, very carefully to this message because you're going to be, you, you, Jesus has got a word for you here today. But for all of you who are on fire for the Lord, amen? Amen. amen. All right. And listen to what he says. For all, when we see all in the Greek, what's, what's all in the Greek mean? All. All the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and in him. In Jesus Christ, what are they? Amen. Amen. I'm, notice that the word amen is in caps. The reason it's in caps because it's referring to the great I, I amen, the great I am. It's referring to Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here, that all the promises in the Lord are amen. They're sure because the Lord is faithful and true. He's faithful and true to who he is, and he's faithful and true to all the promises that he makes. So all his promises are for sure. That means that you could take every promise in this word of God, and if you're truly a born-again believer, you can count on these promises to come true in your life. Every single one of them that God makes to you, they're going to come true because he is faithful and sure. We're not faithful and true and sure, but he's faithful and true and sure. So let's go back to the book of Revelation. You know, I, I, I get this, I come in here sometimes and I get this sense that, you know, remember how I told you when we were, we were looking at the churches, and we looked at the churches at, at, at we looked at the church at Sardis, and, and, and he said to the church at Sardis, you have a name that you are alive, but in reality you're dead. And I come in here sometimes and, and I see, disinterest sometimes in people's face. I see people yawning and falling asleep and I see people getting up and going out. And it really worries, it, it, it's almost sense like I come in here sometimes and it's dead in here. I'm sure the worship team senses the same thing sometimes, that it's just dead in here. 
Man, I got to tell you something. If that's the way you feel about this, you got a serious problem. I don't have a serious problem. I'm doing my best to try to, I mean, I got a lot of serious problems. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot wrong with me. But I'm passionate for the Lord. And I'm passionate for his word. And I'm passionate to worship the Lord. And if you have no passion to worship the Lord, and you don't have no passion for his word, you better pay attention to what's being said in these letters. Because you're going to die. And you're going to find yourself that you've deceived yourself. And you're going to find yourself going to hell. And I don't want that to happen to you. Now, you can't generate that passion. I'm not saying, man, you better start saying amen in here. And you better start clapping when we're singing. You better start raising your hands when you're singing. But when you're not doing those things, there's something wrong inside of you. There's something wrong in your relationship with the Lord. And you better check it out. I'm telling you that in love. It makes me angry in one sense, but I'm also telling you that in love. I'm worried about some some of us. I'm worried about the condition. I'm seriously worried about the condition of the church in America. And I'm seriously worried about the condition of the church in Lafayette. I'm seriously worried about the condition of the city and the condition of our nation. And if that's your position in your heart, you better get with the Lord and start getting things right because you don't want to be part of that Laodicean church. Now we can go home. I'm done. Verse number, <laughs> verse number 14. He goes on now, and he gives another description of himself. And, and listen to what he says. He said he's the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. Now the cults love this verse. They love this verse because it's, they say that it says that he was created. That he was the first being to be created. You know what? They need to study Greek a little bit. Because that word beginning is the Greek word arche. And it, what the Greek word arche means, it means the source of power. The source of power. We get the word, we get our English word Monarch, mon in the Greek meaning only power, the only source of power. In a a monarch, you have the king is the only source of power. Jesus is the only source of power for the creation. He is the creator. That's what the Bible is over and over again says in John chapter 1, verse 3, verse 1 rather. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were that were made were made through him and for him and by him. Everything that was made was made by him. That's what we're told. We're told that in Colossians chapter 1. He is the creator. He's the creator and he's the amen. He's faithful and true and he is sure. Now, Jesus has a word for this apostate church and these apostate believers. And, And what's really sad here In every other church, he gives some sort of commendation. But in this church, he only gives them condemnation. And listen to what he says. 
He says, I know your works. Watch what he says now. I want you to listen to this. That you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold rather than being in the state you're in because you are lukewarm. You're neither hot or cold. And he doesn't mince any words here. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now that sounds gross. But that's exactly the way Jesus feels about lukewarm believers. I will spit you out. You make me sick, is what he's saying. You make me sick to my stomach. You know, I love to drink iced tea. I make me iced tea all the time, and I put me a nice cold, I like it in a styrofoam cup. And I put my styrofoam cup on my desk, and I sip on my iced tea, and I made me an iced tea the other day, and I was sipping on it, and then I reached for another cup that I laid up there about two days earlier. <laughs> and I put that iced tea in my mouth, and I spit it right out. Lukewarm, rancid iced tea. And that's the picture that Jesus has given us right here. He says, you, you, you're lukewarm, and it makes me sick. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, they understood this metaphor. They didn't have any problem understanding this metaphor because of their water system. I mean, their hot water was piped down from Hierapolis and just a few miles north, and it came down to them from these hot water springs. And then their cold water came up to them. It was piped down from the mountains, from Colossae down to Laodicea. Remember Paul wrote the letter to Colossae, and he said, uh, send it to Laodicea and let them read it. They were all there right together. And so they had their cold water piped down uh, to, to uh, Laodicea from Colossae. But if the weather didn't cooperate, when the water got there, it was lukewarm, and that made it nasty. It made it really nasty. So they understood exactly what he was saying right here. Listen, there are three kinds of people in the world, and there's only two kinds that there's hope for. Three kinds of people in the world. And there, actually, there's hope for all three. But the most hope is for the first two categories I'm going to give you. The first kind of people in the world are true believers. Those people who are on fire for Jesus Christ. There's no in-between. You hear that? You're either on fire for Jesus Christ, or you're cold as ice, or you are lukewarm. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. And then the second kind of people that we find on this earth are unbelievers. I mean, people who just will come out and tell you, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. And they're cold to the gospel. They're absolutely cold to the gospel. You know, there's actually more hope for them than there is for a lukewarm believer. And that's the third type of people. And I think the United States is full of these people. Lukewarm people who say they're believers, but they've never been born again. And there's no fire for the Lord. They have absolutely no fire for the Lord. They have a fire for everything else. Take them to a ball game and watch them jump up and down and cheer and throw everything. And, and that's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. But buddy, if you don't have that same passion for the Lord, something's wrong. We should have that same passion for the Lord. And here were these Laodiceans, and, and they thought, 
hey, man, they thought everything was fine, but they were just like the church at Sardis. They had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. And those kind of people, let me tell you, they are the hardest people to reach with the gospel. They're the hardest people to reach for the gospel because they think they're just fine. They've got their ticket punched. And they don't even want to hear about the word of God. They don't even want to hear about the Holy Spirit. They don't even hear about a strong relationship with the Lord. All they care about is their ticket's been punched. And they, they're going to try to lead pretty good lives. And if they don't, you know, Jesus died for them. So, so, so they're saved and they're going to go on to heaven. Actually, this church of Laodicea, look at the next verse. They actually thought they were better off than just fine. Look at this. Because you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. Hey, I claimed it and named it, and the Lord gave it to me. I'm prosperous because, look, the Lord prospers his children. I believe in that. And some of them he doesn't prosper. But it's not about our material prosperity. But they thought because, hey, they were rich and wealthy and had need of nothing, that they were doing just fine in life, and they were doing just fine with the Lord. But you don't understand that you're wretched in my eyes. Wretched. Lost is what he's talking about. Wretched. You're still evil. You haven't been changed. You're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of churches in America today. We call ourselves Christians. But in reality, we put more trust in our bank accounts and in our government and in our medical system than we put in the Lord. And deep down inside, we don't really think we even need Christ. We, we, we need him when heaven comes. We need him when we have some kind of emergency. But most of the time, hey, we're doing just fine. And we build these beautiful churches in America. These fantastic churches in America. Let me tell you where that, what that gets for you. Go visit Europe sometimes and go look at those beautiful cathedrals. A lot of them are occupied by Muslims now. A lot of them are dead as a doornail. But here we build these beautiful churches and we hire preachers that tickle our ears. But deep down inside... We're lukewarm to the Lord. And we have a name that we're alive, but in reality, we're dead. And what does that do? That makes us spiritually wretched. Look at that verse. It makes us poor, it makes us blind, and it makes us naked. That is the sad state of a good portion of the church in America today. And I dare say, I hope not, but that's the state of some people in our church. I mean, I'm, I don't judge your heart. The one with those eyes of fire, he sees what's in your heart. He sees if your relationship with the Lord is real or if it's not real. He sees that. And let me tell you what, if you don't have a passion for the Lord, if you aren't on fire for the Lord, you are lukewarm. And if you're, because everybody, how many of you are believers? 
Okay? Well, you're either really a believer or you're a lukewarm believer. And you listen to me. I'm not saying this to judge you. But if you don't have a passion for the Lord, you are lukewarm. Now, sometimes I understand things get in the way and the world chokes out some of that passion, but you need to get that back. Well, if I'm lukewarm, if I really not, I've never had any fire for the Lord, I don't have any fire for the Lord, is there a fix for that? Certainly there's a fix for everything. And what's his name? The great amen. The great I am. Jesus Christ. And listen to the fix. Listen to the cure. He says in in verse number 18, he says, I counsel you, the great, wonderful counselor, that's who he is too, he counsels you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that you might meet the dress code. You got to the, meet the dress code or you're going to get kicked out. The shame of your nakedness may be revealed that it, and, and then covered. And in order to do that, you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve. What's the eye salve? It's the word of God that you may see. Now here we have this church in Laodicea. And seemingly they were on top of the world. I mean, they wore the finest garments, the latest fashions, the finest homes, and yet they were blind to the state of their souls. They, their souls were decaying and they couldn't see it. And Jesus offers them genuine salvation. Even though they're this lukewarm church, he offers them genuine salvation. How do you get it? You got to buy it. Whoa, pastor, you don't buy it. I thought it just was a gift. Oh, you got to buy it. Don't let me, that's, that's a, there's, there's some false evangelism going out in the world today. You got to buy your salvation. I got to explain that. Hang on with me. Don't think I'm a heretic yet. But first of all, did I make that up? Who said that? Jesus said, buy from me. So you got to buy it. You got to buy it. He says, buy from me refined gold. Refined gold. What's he talking about when refined gold? He's talking about spiritual gold. Spiritual gold that will make you spiritually rich. What's the spiritual gold that, gold that we buy from the Lord? Our faith. We buy our faith from the Lord. We get our faith in the Lord. Wait a minute, didn't Paul say it's a gift of God, not a works like any man should boast? We still have to buy it, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. But that's the most important thing you have, is true faith in Jesus Christ. The kind of faith that gets you born again. That's the most important possession you will ever possess. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that our faith is much much more precious than earthly gold that perishes. It's the most precious thing that we have. But why would Jesus say you got to buy it when it's free? Well, there's a paradox going on right here. You got to really understand what it means to buy something. What does it mean to buy something? It means to make an exchange. You don't, you, if you don't make an exchange, it's all a gift, but there has to be an exchange made. 
in order to, to receive faith, you've got to exchange something. What do you got to exchange? You've got to exchange those, that old life, those old clothes you've been wearing. You've got to throw, Jesus is going to throw them away. He don't want them. You've got to exchange that old life and those old clothes for the new life and those new garments of white that he wants to give you. You've got to make an exchange. You've got to change what's wrong with you for what God wants to give you, which is what's right for you. And that requires an action. Buying and selling requires an action. It requires that we make a choice. You've got to make a choice. You've got to exchange the old life for the new life. That's what he's talking about when he says buy. It's free, but you've got to buy it. He says the same thing. God says that through the prophet Isaiah over in chapter 55. Remember, I told you to hang on to Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 55. Now, don't run out and tell all your friends that the pastor said you've got to buy salvation. You can tell them Jesus said that. But then you've got to be able to explain to them what it means. Okay, so don't run out and say, I'm saying that salvation is, is, costs you something. It does cost you something. I am saying that. But don't run out and say, I said buy it without being able to explain the whole thing. Because Isaiah says it too. Look at Isaiah 55, verse number 1. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts. Thirst for what? Thirst for a better life. Not a wretched, blind, naked, miserable life, but a better life. Come to the waters. What's the waters? The living waters of the Holy Spirit. And you who have no money, hey, here's the good deal. You don't have to have any money, but you've got a rotten old life you can give up. Don't you? Come buy and eat. Buy and eat of what's good. Yes, come buy wine and milk. He didn't say wine, did he? Yeah, he did. Come buy, but he's not talking about that kind of wine. Talking about the wine of the Holy Spirit. Come by wine and milk, milk and meat that build your soul without money and without price. It doesn't cost you anything, but it costs you everything. You've got to be willing to exchange the old life to get the new life. And a lot of people go wrong here. I, I, Friday night I watched the movie about Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. A great movie. As far as Christian movies, you know, a lot of these movies, they, I think they make them on about a $5 budget. You know, and they use high school seniors or something to do the play, and they film it. But this is a well-made, well-acted movie. Very good. But we're watching the movie, and what Lee Strobel is doing in that movie, and, and if you've read the book Case for Christ, you get a little bit of background in the book. His wife became a Christian, and he was a, a, a Yale lawyer who was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And she got saved, and he set out to get her unsaved. By, and what he tried to do was prove that the resurrection didn't happen. And everywhere he turned, he came, and he, he goes into his office, and he's got all of these things all over his wall. And everywhere he turned, and when he looked for the evidence, the evidence was that Jesus what? The historical evidence. More historical evidence for any other event in the world than any other event in the world. And he, he found all this evidence, and at the end of the movie, he comes to his wife in, in tears, and he says, I believe. 
I believe in the resurrection just like you do. And the movie ends. Implying that he was saved. Whoa. You, the demons believe in the resurrection. The demons believe in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what, you can believe this Bible, all 66 books, and until you make that exchange, you're not saved. And you've got to come to that cross. You've got to humble yourself before the cross. Man, before you even talk about the resurrection, you've got to come to that cross where Jesus died. And you've got to come to that cross, and I'm sure Lee Strobel did that. I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying they left this movie hanging here in the wrong place. But you've got to come to that cross, and you've got to accept it what he did for you on that cross. You've got to look to that cross in order to be saved. And then the resurrection, the resurrected life. That's what, when we baptize people in a couple of weeks, that's what's happening there. They're dying to the old life and they're coming up again to a new life in Jesus Christ. They're exchanging the old life for a new life. And there are a lot of people in this world who call themselves Christians, who have never made the exchange. They, they've heard in Sunday school and they've read the Bible and they've seen it on TV and they believe in the resurrection, but they've never made the exchange. And until you make that exchange, let me warn you, you are not saved. Until you give up that old life for a new life. And let me tell you, when you give up that old life for the new life, what a great deal it is. And when you give up that old life or that new life, you know that you know that you know that you've been born again. You know that you're saved. And you have a passion for God's word. You have a passion for Jesus Christ. That becomes the most important passion in your life. Now, we let the things of the world get in there and interfere with that passion. But I'll tell you what, if we have no passion, I'm not, I'm not condemning you today, but you are condemned until you make that exchange. When you make that exchange, I promise you, things are going to change in your life. They're going to change. When you make that exchange, you become heirs to the greatest, all the riches, Spiritual and material in this universe and this world because you become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you something. He owns everything. In the end, it's all his. And if you're with him, it's all yours. Now, you're going to get all those material things now? No. You'll get them in his time. But that's not, you know what happens when you make that exchange and you become born again? Material things become secondary to spiritual things. The most important thing to you when you truly get saved, the most important thing to you is your faith. It's more precious to you, as Peter says, than gold. And then you get the most important possession you will ever possess for eternity. White garments. White garments. White garments 
that you will wear for eternity. You don't like white? I like blue myself, but I, I, I can't convince God. Otherwise, I don't think. I'm going to be wearing white. You're going to be wearing white. Everyone in heaven is going to be wearing white. And we're going to be wearing white forever. Man, is God a killjoy? I mean, is he, is he not in a fashion or something? No, but I'll tell you, we'll get into that in a minute. But you better be wearing white. If you don't have that white garment on, you don't meet God's dress code, you're out. You're out. You better have it on. You better have it on when you die. If you're a born-again believer, you have it on right now. You have it on right now. If I could open up, if, if God would open up your spiritual eyes and you could see your garment, boy, it would change your life. You wouldn't want to dirty that garment at all. That pure, white, beautiful garment that you're going to be wearing for eternity. You could see it. Look at, I don't know how much of that we have. I don't know, you know, what, how that changes with a glorified body. I think it becomes visible then and becomes all of who we are. We've got a taste of it now. But you better be wearing it. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 22. There's a little parable there that talks about God's dress code. A little cryptic parable. In Matthew chapter 22. First book of the Old Testament, Matthew 22. We're not going to finish uh, Revelation 3 today. No way. But I'm going to try to get you out of here real quick here. He says in Matthew chapter 22, look down in verse number 8. He's talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Man, you talk about something I'm looking forward to. I mean, I'm looking forward to the pulled pork at the baptism, but, but the wedding supper of the Lamb, uh, that, that, there's, no, there's nothing like that. But you've got to be dressed right, or you're going to get kicked out. Look at verse number 8. Then he said to his servants, Jesus, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Who was invited? The Jews were invited, but they rejected Jesus, so they weren't worthy. They made themselves unworthy. You make yourself unworthy by making that exchange. They didn't want to make that exchange. They wanted to keep their old life. They wanted a king that would that protect them from Rome and take, get them out of the Roman bondage, but, but, but they didn't want a new life. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. Now, who were the bad and who were the good? They were all bad and they were all good. Everybody's bad. There's none righteous, no, not one. But we've all been made good through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Oh, what a happy day. But... When the king, Jesus, came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. He didn't meet the dress code. Listen to what he says. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, bind him. He said to his servants, to, to the angels, bind him. And, and this man represents all false believers. He says, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. What's that description of? Hell. 
and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, and many think they're saved, but few, very few, are chosen. What should that man have been wearing? Garments of white. Given to us by Jesus Christ. We buy them. We buy them by exchanging our old garments of flesh for his wonderful, beautiful, pure white garments of righteousness. We buy them without cost. All we have to do is come with a willingness to exchange, come in humility with a willingness to exchange our old life for a new life. Now, why does God enforce such a stringent death dress code? I mean, why, why, why does he want us to wear those kind of garments forever? Well, I got to tell you this. When you get your new white garment, when you see your new white garment, you're not going to want to wear anything else. You're going to want to wear it forever. When I was a little boy, I had an uncle who was very rich. We used to love when my uncle came to town because he brought presents. And one time I remember when I was a little boy, he, he brought me a cowboy suit. Man, I'm talking about a fine cowboy suit. Had the hat, had the, had the leather uh, vest and the leather chaps. I think they were plastic, but they, were, they looked like leather. Six shooters, two six shooters, man, boots. I put that thing on and my parents couldn't get me to take it off. I wore it to bed. I wore it when I got up. I got it, talked to them into let me wear it to school. That's another story. I won't get into it. Got me into trouble. But, but I didn't want to take it off. Now, if I was still wearing that today, y'all might get up and leave. I've given those things up. But when I get my white garment, I'm going to wear it everywhere I go, and I'm not going to want anything else. Because let me tell you what that white garment is. That word white right there is, again, that word Lucas, from which we get our name Luke. And in the context, it doesn't simply mean the color white. It means much more than that. It's a pure white glowing light. It is the very Shekinah glory of God. It's the life of God flowing through you. And you glow like a light bulb. I mean, you're going to glow more than a light bulb. It's a beautiful light, a glowing light that you will wear forever. And I'll tell you what, a thousand years from now, somebody says, hey, why don't you take that off and put on your cowboy suit? No way, dude. I'm wearing my white light forever. See, the man in the parable was kicked out of the wedding feast because he was wearing religious garments. Garments of his own works, of his own righteousness. Those garments of light, we had to buy them, but they were free. All we had to do was give up the old stuff to get the new stuff. You remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were clothed in those white garments. No doubt about it. They were glowing. They couldn't even see their skin. There was so much glow emanating from their body. That's why when God, they ate of the fruit and they sinned and they died spiritually, the light went out. And all of a sudden, what did they realize? They realized that they were naked. And what was the first thing they did when they realized they were naked? The same thing people realize all over this world today when they realize that they're spiritually naked. They put on fig leaves. 
They try to cover it up. They tried to immediately cover it up. That's what the Laodiceans were doing. They were wearing these fine clothes. They were doing all sorts of religious things. And they, what they were doing, they were covering up their nakedness. Because Jesus says to them right here, he says to them, well, I've got to get back to Revelation chapter 3, but he says that you're, hey, you're, you're wretched, and you're blind, and you're poor, and you're naked. You're naked. You're naked. You don't have that light. So what does Jesus tell them to do? Going back again, get back to Revelation chapter 3. What does he, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to, to get some salve. He says, buy some salve so you can see. You know, that's an interesting metaphor that they understood too because in Laodicea they manufactured an eye salve, an eye salve that people used who were going blind so to help them to see. But he says, hey, not that kind of eye salve. salve. Get the eye salve of the, I think he's speaking here of the word of God. Open your eyes spiritually. That is a choice you make. That's a choice you make. Will you exchange that old nature? And, and, and then God gets you into the word and you can see things spiritually. And so there is a fix. I mean, here's this lukewarm church. They're calling themselves Christians, but there is a fix. And, and the fix is to get the right garment, exchange the old garment, and get the garment that qualifies for God's dress code. And that's that garment of God's pure, brilliant, white light. The Shekinah glory of God. You got some of that now. And those new glorified bodies, that's going to be all of it. I mean, we'll have, we have a spiritual body. Spiritual is the adjective. Body is the noun. So we will have a body. But it's going to be a body filled so much with the Spirit of God that we're going to emanate the very Shekinah glory of God. And we buy it, but it's a gift. It's a gift. Let me close with one verse. I'm sorry I'm keeping you a little bit late here. Let me close with one last verse in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 61. And look at verse number 10. I don't know about you, but I can say amen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice. I will have passion for the Lord. I won't be lukewarm. My soul shall be joyful to my God. For he has clothed me. Who did it? He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself out with ornaments and a bride adorns herself with jewels. I've been made ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I am passionate about my Lord. I will greatly rejoice and my soul will be joyful to my God. If you're here today and your soul is not joyful to your God, and you're not greatly rejoicing, 
and you're lukewarm to this stuff, there's a fix. Get into the Word. Open your eyes. Make the exchange. Buy those garments of white. You buy them by exchanging simply that old life for the new life. And it all comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price so that you can live forever glorified in those white garments that he's given you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the wonderful gift that you've given us. Lord, help us to, I, I, I sense that just about everybody here, Lord, in this room is saved, but we have allowed so many things to interfere in our relationship with you. Lord, I, I, just, I just ask that you just show us the importance that you convict us, Lord, of the importance of in these last days drawing as close to you as we possibly can. Father, if there's someone here who's a pretender, who really never has had a passion for you, who really never has rejoiced greatly in their salvation, who really never has made that exchange, Lord, I ask today that today be the day of their salvation, that you convict them and touch them, touch their hearts, and they hear this call, and they simply give their lives to you. They make that exchange. Lord, the passion will come then, I know. You know. We just thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.